This play is a classic because it has the best drag monologue I've ever read. This play is a classic because it was written by the most badass nun to ever exist. Mm. <laughs> this play is a classic because... No, now I can only just think of the badass nun thing. That's so true. <laughs> She's kind of amazing. This is our history. This is our legacy. Wait, you wrote a college research paper about this? I wrote a 15-page research paper about Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz for my um, my senior year, my junior year of college. I love everything about this. Dr. Buckner. She knew what she was doing. Shout out to Dr. Buckner. Yes. And we all wrote um, papers. And at the end of them, we had to act as them. So I showed up in a nun costume. So educators out there listening to this podcast, um, here are some suggestions <laughs> for what you can do uh, to incorporate Expand the Canon and the badass ladies on this list. Um, feel free to email us for more details. <laughs> okay, shall we start from the top? Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater podcast. We're your hosts. Emily Lyon, the Associate Artistic Director of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater and a curator of Expand the Canon. And me, Shannon Corinthian, curator, performer, and Hedgepig Ensemble member. And we're here to introduce you to some plays by women that are classics. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based theater company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. By investing in the growth of our artists, we nurture an inclusive and collaborative community that creates artistically excellent work. And here we are to talk about House of Desires. Okay, so if you go to expandthecanon.com, as you should, here's what you will find about House of Desires. If you wish Twelfth Night's love triangle was a love octagon... Meet this passionate and thrilling love octagon of a comedy. House of Desires is a romantic farce about two siblings involved in a variety of romantic entanglements. Lock everyone in the same house, sometimes turn off the lights, and watch the sparks and antics ensue. Originally written in Spanish, it is a wonderfully witty comedy of errors full of clear-sighted female protagonists, clever servants, and the folly of ambitious men. This is a fun and easy read. It is reminiscent of the classical comedies you see staged and can make for a great night of theater. House of Desires is really about, in the method of Midsummer's Night's Dream, um, Don Pedro loves Doña Leonor, who loves Don Carlos, who is desired by Donna Ana, but betrothed to Don Juan. This 17th century romantic farce is a wild tale of confusion and mistaken identities, complete with wily servants and groping suitors. And as you mentioned, dark rooms and whispered antics. Okay, so you may have to talk me through that one more time. So there's a bunch of Dons and a bunch of Donnas. Mm-hmm. And they all love the wrong person or the right person, depending right, on of course. what your opinion is. Yes. And they're all working together and against each other to fall in love with each other. Does that clear things up for you? Um, 
no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yes, I, I read the play. I love the play. But it is like that sort of farcical. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody is a little bit. Everyone gets twisted around like that. That is the play. Yeah. Um, so, no, I am with you. But, but also yes. I can imagine somebody listening to this podcast is like, wait, wait, hold on. Who? Donya Leonor mm-hmm. is like the manic pixie dream girl everybody wants she's like the hot hot girl at the party and don carlos and don pedro both love her yes but don carlos is loved by donna anna but donna anna is betrothed to don juan right so Daniel leonor is hermia and Daniel yes. anna is helena carlos is demetrius and don pedro is lysander 100 percent cool, cool, and cool. castaño who's a servant is bottom <laughs> <laughs> love it love it but what i will say is that unlike midsummer which is a wonderful play Truth. i feel like all the characters in this play are super smart and it's kind of like when you see really smart people in one room and then they just do really stupid things and you just mm. kind of enjoy watching it that's what this play is for me that's true although i mean shout out to helena who is really smart True. So it's a play of like four Helenas. It's 100%. All right. So we've got the Midsummer Lovers plot. What else is going on? Witty banter. Some servants while helping their, you know, their employers really are looking out for themselves with add a little spice to this play as well. Oh, yeah. Gotta love that B-plot. What I like is that, you know, some B-plots are really just kind of there and they're the comic relief. But every moment in this play is comic relief. And the B-plot is maybe as good as the rest of the play. True. Other than the plot, the writing. Yeah. There is an amazing monologue in Act 3. That's a drag monologue that we'll hear a bit of. You're welcome. And there is some wonderful costumes and sets. And, you know, you just kind of get taken away in this reality history thank god for sor juana Mm. as exciting as this play is when it's framed with her background it makes it even more exciting and it made me want this play to be produced even more because she is so badass tell me more shannon she was one of the first female writers to be recognized and celebrated in the new world which wasn't really new let's all acknowledge that as well as the old, which I won't even say new world. She was celebrated in the colonized world as mm. well as the old. Absolutely. She was born in 1651 to unmarried parents <gasps> right outside of Mexico City. Scandal. <laughs> it was a scandal and it was such a scandal that in 1660, she went to live with her maternal grandfather because her own father would not claim her. And <gasps> yeah, so she went to live with her grandfather um, and there, she entered the court of Mexico. Wait, she entered the court of Mexico? What mm-hmm. was her grandpa up to that he was in court? Well, she comes from a long line of, you know, aristocrats. So her grandfather uh. was titled. So she still got access to the court. Okay, so then, so she's in the court. Then so what happens? So she's in the court and she meets the Marquis of Mancera. So literally the ruler of Mexico at the time, his wife was like, um, your dad left you hanging. Let me give you access to everything that Mexico has to offer, that colonized Mexico has to offer. I mean, obviously we have problems with colonization, 
but <laughs> shout out to this lady. Um, absolutely awesome for if you're gonna if you're gonna rule, be be a queen, truly be uh, a queen. Cool. Uh, yeah, and she allows her. She allows Sor Juana to have access to high level of education by the age of 15 she was thought of some as the most educated woman in mexico hence her nickname the 10th muse because she was clever and had a lot of talent in her field that's fascinating and incredible she advocated for women's rights long before it was even a concept at 15 she was already very vocal well as vocal as she could be about women's rights and um, women's agency and the right to education because she fought for that she fought for the right to education she fought for the right for women to be their own people it's so clear that her education shaped her life to Mm -hmm. be so different than it could have been and would have been otherwise. So she really knows like what a difference it makes. So she has all this influence. She has all this education, but despite that, Sor Juana decides to enter a convent at 16. So she goes there at 16 and takes her vows at 18. So her entry to the convent was an event in itself. In the 17th century, the divide between the church and the court was really great. So an unclaimed woman of her social standing willingly entering a convent was unheard of. Nobody really knows why she went to the convent. Like no one knows for sure because obviously um, we can't ask her anymore. And she didn't really talk about her personal life in her writings. But a lot of people have speculated. Uh, What did they speculate? There are many reasons. It's thought she pledged her life to convent as a response to not wanting to be married. Well, sure. You have two options at that point, really. In the 1600s, what do you, yeah. Yeah. Are you going to marry God (laughs) or are you going to marry a real man? Yep. And she was like, I'm going to marry God. Cool. Another reason was that she wanted to remove herself from worldly distractions to better fit in her spirituality. So the discovery of New Spain, which is Mexico, which, you know, bullshit title of New Spain, Mm. (laughs) plus the changing in government because there is a lot of back and forth, um, plus people trying to find their place in this new land meant that depravity and sexuality abounded. It was kind of like the Roaring Twenties, but in Mexico in the 17th century. Oh, because like... You know, you don't have traditional rules. You're like with the people who are making the rules. And so they feel entitled to whatever. It's like when you go to college, you're away from your parents. (laughs) You get to essentially make your own rules. You're not an adult fully yet because no one has really thrown you truly out there. But you're like, let me do what I want. Mm. Yeah. Instead of at home, you're at new home. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is the environment that Sor Juana is raised in. And so she uses the interactions of the people around her to influence her writing. Her poems touch a lot. She writes a lot of poems and her poems touch on sexuality and the human form. Um, However, as an unmarried woman at 16, she attracted, I know, she attracted a lot of attention, wanted and unwanted. And so to avoid men, convent. So that's why, you know, there's a lot of reasons why she could go to the convent. Like, she has a lot of reasons to be like, peace out, I'm out of here. I actually feel like this is, uh, like, a really interesting discussion for anybody thinking about doing Measure for Measure also. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. what is going on in the headspace of a woman who is choosing her own freedoms over so much disgusting elements of the patriarchy. 
Another reason and what is most likely true is that she wasn't allowed to pursue her education as a woman of wealth. So despite mm. the viceroy's influence, people are like, mm, we don't really like this 15 year old woman being so smart. And by we, I mean the men at the time. Sure. Yeah. So there she went there because she was allowed to study as a nun. I get it. You know, that would be really <laughs> depressing to be like, I'm the most educated woman in like the vicinity. Um, but you're going to take my books away because you want me to marry some rando dude. Right. And also being like being the quote, quote, illegitimate, whatever that actually means daughter, um, of some guy that just decided she was meaningless. Uh. Like, I can understand why you'd be really dubious of that whole system. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, she loved studying so much that she wrote this in her biography, the only biography she wrote. She wrote um, a biography. I love that. Autobiography? Yeah. She claims in her bi- autobiography, Tengo más el deseo de saber que el de comer, which translates to she had a stronger desire to learn than to eat. As a person that loves eating, um, <laughs> that is a really meaningful... <laughs> Right? Um, Statement. Yeah. So the last reason, there's one more reason. um, And this is the one that's more like historically accurate and kind of scary. But at the time, the conquests were a very tense time for women. And by conquest, I mean, um, there was a lot of strife between the natives of Mexico and the colonizers, obviously. Yeah. Um, And so the conquistadors were still trying to conquer Mexico. And as she was an aristocrat, of the colonized Mexico, it was really hard for women if they weren't part of a convent or part of the aristocracy because they were targeted. So their fate would be less Uh, than ideal if they were found by the opposition. Oh, man. Yeah. So when the Marquis of Mancera left for Spain and the Marquis is the viceroy, when he left back for Spain, Sor Juana had no choice but to go to a convent because she wanted to be safe. That is, there are so many levels as to why that is sad. Right? Um, yeah. It's, but it's, yeah. luckily, she became, uh, despite all of the bizarre and terrible things going on in the world, um, she wrote this fantastic play and gave us like a legacy of, of badassery. Isabel is an autobiography. Like, come on. Yeah. That is, that's a power move right there. Yeah, 100%. On top of everything that she was writing, she decided she was like, I'm going to I'm going to claim my own story because people keep trying to, you know, tear her down. Yeah. So I think that's quite badass. Here's another exercise that all women should practice. Write your own autobiography. There you go. Exactly. You don't have to publish it. Just write your own story. Legacy. Okay. So she goes into the convent for like eight gajillion reasons. Yes. At the convent, where she's away from all these worldly distractions, as she calls them, she writes profusely because she has a lot of time on her hands and she gains a lot of popularity and fame and everybody loves her writing. New York Times list. (laughs) Everybody's reading her. Yeah. She's always Billboard top 100, number one Mm. on the charts. Everybody loves her except the clergy. Well... Which is ironic because she was like, I'm escaping this thing to go to this other thing that also hates me. And it's, and this is, this is really another sad part of her life, which is funny because when I was doing this research on Sor Juana, I just kept remembering how badass she was. But 
that badassery comes from her overcoming so many things nonstop, like over and over. Mm. She's just kind of like, none of these people are going to bring me down and I'm just going to keep going. It makes me think a little bit about um, AOC yes. in Congress and then all the men in Congress being like, oh, she's like using social media. We can't. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> so she, towards the end of her life, the church, the clergy, the men in charge, who doesn't appreciate her text, who don't appreciate her text or Sad. fame. Yeah. Condemn her writing and attempt to halt her career by wildly attacking her. I'm so surprised. Right? Yeah. So as a result, her faith and her obedience to God and her own creativity is their pit against each other. So on the one hand, she believes she should be allowed to speak her mind. But on the other, her religious peers push her to believe she's going against God's will. Um, the Archbishop of Mexico, who's awful, his name is Francisco de Aguiar y Cejas, her arch enemy, but also her boss, put her on a secret trial in 1693, which what? is, yeah, essentially he called all of the people in charge and didn't tell anyone else um, and didn't tell her that this was happening. Of course. And he put her on trial for her works. He wanted her plays outlawed. So none of her plays written during his tenure, which was about like, I want to say five to 10 years, were published. Francisco was just like blocking Expand the Canon. Way <laughs> pretty in the much. He pretty much gaslit her into believing she's wrong and that her plays were plight on Mexico. Cool. So love him. Thanks yeah. a lot, Francisco. She um, also is extremely private. Information about her personal life from 1669 until her general confession in 1693 and the general confession is what you do right before you pass away oh it's non-existent there's no information about her life for about 20 plus years so did she write her autobiography in 69 and then no she wrote it towards the end of her life she just didn't mention a lot she just spoke about church could she have a love life yes so (gasps) it was rumored that she might have liked women. Oh. You know, another reason why she was maybe unmarried at the time. Because she had relationships with women. And you can kind of tell in her poem, she talks a lot about the female form and, um, you know, the bodies and their response and all that stuff. And it's very, very tantalizing. Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So we were talking about all her works, and De La Cruz did not limit herself to one literary medium. She is most known for her poems. The coolest one is called The Ridondias. Um, It's more a series of poems challenging men of the Tenth Muses time period. So she's kind of like calling out the men from her time period and questioning their reasoning for succumbing to their wiles and then blaming women. Mm. The first line of the first poem, I think it's called You Men. You, comma, men. Truly, like, not hiding behind her pen. She's like, I'm obviously going to call you guys out. So this is the first stanza of the poem, You Men. Hombres necio que acusáis a la mujer sin razón, sin ver que sois la ocasión de los mismo que culpáis. Which translates to... Silly, you men so very adept at wrongly faulting womankind, not seeing you're alone to blame for faults you plant in women's mind. Oh. Right? Like, how badass is that? That's the first stanza of your poem. 
I now need to go read her poetry yeah. and then memorize it and oh, then yeah. yell it at people that can't call me. Yeah. <laughs> but we wanted to talk about her relationship to the native Mexicans, right? Yeah. She includes those in her poems. This is a big part of her poems of, um, you know, the relationship between the native Mexicans and the Spanish. And she had kind of a first account of that relationship involving and she includes this in her writing. She takes the sides of the native Mexicans because she sees the destruction and it's mm. kind of beautiful because she talks about the native land and all that stuff. I really recommend reading her poems or just like a finding a translation of them because she, she really was ahead of her time. Yeah. In so many ways, it seems. Yeah. She's compared to Lope de Vega and Calderon, who are two big playwrights and poets of her time. Um, and it's, it's assumed by historians that they were inspired by her. <gasps> yeah. Boom. Yeah. And so she's compared to them because of her use of metaphors and imagery and, as a means to communicate her text, as was the Baroque style that reigned during the 17th century. So yeah, her contemporaries would claim that she was borrowing from these famous male authors when it can be argued that they were the ones who were influenced by her works. Just saying. She was the 10th muse. So yeah, that's, that's Sarwana. Amazing. So coming back to this play though. Yes. Um, why, why is this play a classic? This play is a classic because it challenged the traditional customs of Spanish and Mexican court of its time. I, I also think this play is a classic because every single one of the characters is so vibrant. Mm-hmm. There, there's just so much like passion and fire, but also fun and joy in this play. Yeah. Like I remember laughing out loud so much at this play. And also shout out to Catherine Boyle who did the translation to this because you truly get the, the magic of the language in this translation. And, and it's just funny. You get her humor, you get her, her, you know, her creative writing, her metaphors in this play. And, and it's truly enjoyable from start to finish. Yeah. I, I love it. And I remember, um, the monologue that Basil is going to read for us in a moment, um, is when I knew that we had to put this on our list. Oh yeah. Oh, had to. So here is Basil Roderick's reading a monologue from House of Desires. I wish I didn't have to do this. I wouldn't if I could get out of it. I'd invent something. Good God, how am I supposed to give this letter to Don Rodrigo without him or anyone else knowing who I am? If only I were the great pretender, Garatusa. Beloved patron saint of my homeland in the Indies and of the servants in a fix. The greatest escape artist of them all. Bless him. Oh, someone. Somewhere. Anyone, anywhere. Some kind man or even a woman. Whether you wield a fan or parade with a sword, inspire me with a Calderonian twist of the plot to get me out of this mess. But by God, I've struck on a way. Leonore gave me her dresses and jewels when she was playing Helen to that baby-faced Paris, and I've got them all here. They've been my bed for days. 
If I dress up in all this stuff, no veiled woman in Toledo will match my grace and elegance. Mm, here we go. Off with these rags. It'll take years off me. If I clamp them down a bit. Now, for the skirts. Sweet Jesus, what a beautiful material. It suits me perfectly. I'm so dark that blue looks divine on me. And what's this? Jewels! Forget them. Better to dress down, methinks. Here's a veil. I'll plant this on me, too. That's it. And will this breast piece fit? <laughs> Only makeup poisonous stuff to go. Pray to God for an artful hand to put it on. But no. He pays no heed and it's all over my face. Still no need for rouge, eh? Look, a lady in disgrace in a mess like this is bound to turn a thousand shades of red. And what do you think, ladies and gentlemen, of this corset? Corset and petticoats? Me at my best. I really am beautiful. Good God. But I'm gorgeous. I'm of such a fine mold. Everything. Thing looks a treat on me. Now, for the final touches. I'm not quite the perfect lady yet. Gloves? Definitely. To hide my hands. Gotta make them smooth as Jacob's, though. I'm more of an Esau myself. The cloak is the key. Gently does it over my head. This fan is the image of my grace and beauty. But maybe I still shine through? Do you think it's still a bit too much like me? For sure, there'll be some woman who'll say to her companion, Barakita, this fool's a fraud. But pay attention, ladies and gentlemen. This is all part of the play. Don't think I've concocted it all on my own. I have no wish to deceive you. Least of all our eminent visitors from out of town. Well, I'm ready. And what's the bet? That 4,000 of those idiots that chase anything that walks will fall over each other to get at me. Not with the beauty that I am, but with the beauty they think I am. Now, let's get on with being a lady. Small steps, graceful and elegant. Wriggle, wriggle, side to side, head inclined, hand concealed in the cloak, one eye veiled, the other not. My beauty's wasted in these cloisters, yet... Still, I fear that someone will fall head over heels for me. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you, Basil. That was so good.
Yes, you did wonderfully in the reading we did during the Expand the Canon Festival last year. And always wonderful to hear again. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Can we just have everyone do this monologue all the time? All the time. It's Thank so you. fun. It uh, is. Just do it in your living room and maybe maybe record it for the masses. I think that'd just be really fun. Yes. And you know why? Because this is a classic. Thank you for joining us for our House of Desires edition of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Uh, Learn more at expandthecanon.com. And for information on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram at Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Facebook slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. Dot org. You can also support this effort by donating at the link in the comments below, bit.ly slash hedgepigmemberships. Again, I'm Emily Lyon. And I'm Shannon Corinthian. See you soon!